Hello, welcome to Hattrick. I'm Jordan Dollar Coltman, joined this week by Braden and Elliot. Nice to have all three of us back together. Uh, Elliot, you've had a busy couple weeks off. I know you were at a wedding. We, Braden and I were questioning whether or not it was Darnell Nurse's. Uh, would you mind setting the record straight? Were you or were you not at Doc's wedding? I was uh, I was not at Darnell Nurse's wedding, sorry. I, uh, I, I had a, I was invited, but I had already committed to another wedding. So that was the one that I was at. Well, of course, you can't uh, you can't you can't hit them all. And this is wedding season, certainly. Uh, Braden, any weddings you've been to lately? Uh, no, sadly, I, I haven't been to any weddings. Uh, I am still looking to crash a few weddings this summer. So, weddings taking place. What was that noise? Did you hear? I did. No, yeah. I did. <laughs> anyway. All right. Well, with that, uh, let's get to it. Here's topic one. I hope we hear that in the recording. I hope so too. That was not. What did it sound like? <laughs> I just did it. Yeah. All right. Well, topic one is a uh, it's a difficult topic to address here on what has become Canada's official, unofficial uh, Padres podcast. Look, Elliot, we have been for weeks eagerly inviting new people to join the bandwagon. It is. After the trade deadline, that Padres bandwagon got big. I can tell you right now, just from like my own uh, private polling, having seen like four or five people at work all of a sudden wearing Padres hats, people whom I've never seen wear a single baseball uh, hat or a team affiliated piece of merchandise in my life. All of a sudden, they're all Padres fans. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who became Padres fans and a lot of people who had a lot of excitement following the the Juan Soto trade and just seeing this team bulk up, prepare for a big push to try to compete with the Dodgers and the biggest addition they were anticipating returning to the lineup. Fernando Tatis Jr. will not be playing this season or even into next season. He has been handed an 80 game suspension by the league for violating its anti-doping policy. He has been accused and I guess caught, uh, with the uh, banned substance clostable in his system. It is a medication originally uh, he claims he took to treat ringworm. That's a whole other conversation. Uh, the point being, it is a banned substance. It is a substance that has been banned for several years and many players have been suspended for having in their system because it is one of the... Um, drugs that the anti-doping agencies in both the United States and WADA, the, the international one, recognized to be a drug that is easily um, easy to, to slip by many tests because it has a very short half-life in your system. So you have to have just recently taken it for it to even show up. Uh, so when it shows up, it's quite obvious, apparently. Look, I know, Elliot, this has got to be difficult. You're a bona fide, diehard Padres fan. What was this news like? How crushing and how frustrating was it? Uh, yeah, I mean, let me just start by addressing the uh, Padres bandwagon uh, thing. I, you know, I appreciate that now they've got one of the best players in baseball. Uh, you know, everyone now is a fan. But for us diehards, people like me that have been following the team for close to seven months now, well before the trade deadline, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit insulting. Uh, in terms of this situation, uh, this is absolutely devastating news, incredibly frustrating, and just so stupid. And it's just it's the type of self-inflicted wound 
that the Padres, you know, as a, as a fan, we've just come to accept following this team. It's it's the ups and downs of uh, of this team. The ex- going from we're going to win the World Series to losing, um, you know, our star player and Fernando Tatis Jr. for something that is just like it's inexcusable. It's absolutely inexcusable that he uh, got he tested positive for this uh, substance. In fact, I would say as a as a diehard Padres fan and deeply committed to the team, uh, his absence this entire year has been completely inexcusable. Uh, he broke his wrist in the offseason doing motocross. Uh, that's not something that when you've committed, when a city and organization has committed uh, you know, over a, uh, a third of a billion dollars to you uh, and, and and shown that commitment and, and that engagement that, that you can do it. And, and I just, for me, shows like a clear lack of maturity and uh, he hasn't figured it out yet. And, and um, it's awful. And, and I appreciate it. It's very clear that his teammates are very frustrated with him. It's clear that management, his, his managers are frustrated with him, uh, the team president, um, you know, they just went from one of the best days and, and this amazing excitement around this team and the Padres are here, baby. And, and this is a championship winning team uh, to have someone do something so selfish. It's just, it's so frustrating. Um, you, you mentioned the president uh, that's, that's uh, Peller, Preller, Preller. We'll go with Preller. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to read you a quote here because I think it is telling and I'm sure that there's a lot of internal frustration and uh, within that organization. This is his quote and I quote, he's somebody from, uh, from the organization standpoint, we've invested time and money into when he's on the field, he's a difference maker. You have to learn from your situations. We were hoping that from the off season to now that there would be some maturity. And obviously with the news today, it's more of a pattern and it's something that we've got to dig a bit more into. I'm sure he's very disappointed, but at the end of the day, it's one thing to say it. You've got to start to, you've got to start showing by your actions and quote. So that's some very, I mean, oftentimes we see in these situations, the team sort of rally around the player or stand by their defense. I mean, this feels very much like the organization is, very open about their frustration and more importantly, their disappointment in this player. And as he's pointed out in that quote, you know, this is a pattern of behavior, obviously two different things being injured and and now failing a drug test. However, both of them are through his own actions. (laughs) And in both situations, he is preventing himself from being able to contribute to the team on the field, a team that right now is riding an incredible emotional high. They have been winning big games. We've seen multiple walk-offs, you know, walk-off home runs by Manny Machado. We've seen the impact of Soto and some of these other players. This is a good baseball team. And they were, I believe, very much counting on adding the kind of impact that he has when he swings a baseball bat, something we have not seen in a long time. And now we won't for at least another 80 games. Braden, uh, it's more than just 80 games. I should also say it's 80 games. Those are regular season games. You are ineligible for the playoffs, regardless of how far. So that doesn't also take down the total of games. He's probably missing 23 or 30 games into next season based on where we are right now. Braden, uh, obviously we have seen over the past decade, a very serious turn in how baseball responds to these situations. We have seen a lot more forceful response. Do you believe 80 games is a fair and just um, consequence for this kind of 
drug or this kind of action by this player? Uh, or is this just where baseball is because of its lack of enforcement through the Mark McGuire and, and Sammy Sosa days and the Alex Rodriguez situations? And you, they've gotten to this place where like 80 games, even in a 123 game schedule is a lot. It's a very stiff penalty. Yeah. I think it's significant. I, I, I don't see why it needs to be any longer than that. Um, there, there's clearly a precedent based on what you just said around other, other individuals who've done this. I think the unfortunate thing in this situation too is he's 23 years old. Most of these other guys who have gone through something like this, they're a bit more into their career picking a rod. And I mean, when they, when it was announced that, you know, they were actually using, it's very likely that they were using well before the thing that it makes me think of though, is, you know, was this drug not administered by a team doctor? Like, and, and if not, then the team doctors and the health professionals who are part of the organization and responsible for this player, you know, where does that fit in? And, and how does, uh, you know, how, how does that part of it take, you know, take responsibility? You, you see the kind of immaturity of saying, well, I, I didn't know it was a mistake, but you're a professional athlete. And like Elliot said, this guy's, you know, they signed him to a 14 year, $340 million contract. The responsibility here is huge. And it goes Beyond just his wherewithal, I think we're, we're seeing the immaturity specifically in this player right now. He, you know, he signed his contract and he was injured to a hamstring. Then he had this motorcycle accident. And then when asked about the motorcycle accident, he said, which one? Like, there's clearly a, a bit of a, a, a problem here with this individual that the team needs to get a hold of. And uh, yeah, again, it goes back to what, uh, you know, who, who's, who's, fully responsible for this because i think it's beyond just one individual um but at the same time taking responsibility and saying yeah that was in my system i'm not going to appeal let's just get on with the suspension well i mean i think that there's something more to this too i i you know the other piece of this you you ask a great question around like how did he get this drug and and what had happened and i'm just not buying the story about ringworm like I, it, to me that doesn't make any sense um maybe i'm wrong about that is but, it a preventative thing or is it a cure up for for ringworm. Well, exactly. But the other piece of this is that Tatis Jr. has taken really strong stances with the team with regards to how he's rehabbed his his numerous injuries that he's had. So we've talked about these this broken wrist this year. He also had shoulder issues last year. In both situations, the more likely and more likely to be successful treatment was surgery, and he's refused that in both instances. The team has honored that. Obviously, wanting to placate to their star, you know, three hundred and thirty million dollar player. Um, and, 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 but it also shows just like a lack of, not a lack of, it just shows a, a level of entitlement that I think is starting to become really working. And, and that's the other piece of this as well. I, I mean, it, it's hard to, you know, where it feels a bit like we're kicking a guy while we're down. And as a, a fierce Padres uh, fan, I don't, I don't want to go too far down this piece, but I, 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 I just, it just is so, it, it's so stupid and it's like self-inflicted. And it just feels like there's a lot more under the surface that maybe we don't hear about, but it's one of those things, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. Uh, and it feels like we're in that sort of a situation right now. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing I guess about it is that when you are a player of his um, bravado and sort of prominence in terms of, you know, this organization, he was there 
when this organization began to build, they built around him with the plan to build around him, uh, going out and getting these pieces. And he has seen this team in the last four years, I guess, progress to being a competitor and now a contender in many ways, um, certainly pushing the Dodgers in their division. And yet when you have that kind of um, a, a persona or, or presence or sort of impact as, a, as an athlete in that organization, the effects on both sides, positive when it's good and negative when it's bad are amplified. And in this situation, I think that, you know, 80 games is bad regardless of who the player is, but when it's this important or this big a player, it makes a bigger story. It becomes a bigger thing. And as you say, when it's attached to all of these other, this other negativity that he has seemed to have been embroiled in, it's certainly difficult. It is becoming um, who he is looked at, I think, throughout the league as, as sort of a, a difficult piece of, of the Padres puzzle. And, and can he turn that around? Can he fix that? Um, and and how many how much patience do the Padres have for that? You know, they, they can't just sit around now waiting for him to to join them. They, they expect to find success. They've put these well, other players practically replaced him with Soto this year. Like, but can you imagine what they were expecting was to have both of them? I mean, that's a very dangerous team. And now they are, as you say, now they need Soto to replace them. But that wasn't the plan. Well, and I think that there's a lot if you're we're starting to bring in Soto. And I thought you guys did a great job of covering this while I was uh, away. Um, the conversation around Soto now, like you have to wonder if at all this has any impact on the future of Soto and the team. He's committed now for two more years. That's obviously, you know, what they have to do. Um, but the goal with moving or w- with acquiring him was obviously for two more years um, with, with the Padres. But there was also significant conversation around offering him another big blockbuster deal to stay with the team. And ultimately, you know, everyone knows the report. Soto turned down $440 million with the Nationals. That's why he was available. Um so uh, you would it would feel like at this point the Padres are in the best position to sort of sign him and have the first crack at it. You have to wonder if this type of behavior impacts Soto's decision making, and and there is always that secondary piece as well too, uh, and that's another concern. My initial concern as well. Yeah, uh, this is a bit tangential, but I I would be curious to know kind of the statistics around what the difference is between major leagues are when it comes to doping or performance enhancing drugs, because it, it seems to be so relevant in baseball and it continues to be relevant in baseball. And I wonder if there's a difference between, you know, how many milligrams is somebody using when, it, when we talk about steroids, there's this big, Oh, this guy juiced up so that he could be, you know, incredibly powerful and be able to hit a ball. But when you look at the use of what some of these people have used it for of rehab and of, you know, they're not playing the game when they're rehabbing and there, you know, there's just different, I mean, it brings in the sticky substance, you know, conversation. There's just called constantly these things in baseball where we go, no, that's cheating. Yeah. Well, I go back to what I, what I, when I first posed the first question to you, I think I go back to that part of it, which is this, I mean, this is a sport that has a very tarnished legacy because of a almost 20 year period where they let steroids and performance enhancing drugs run rampant unchecked. And as a result, they found themselves in a real uh, political to be quite frank mess about it later on. Um, All of this is, all of this is a systemic thing, very American, about recognizing 
you know, sort of the integrity of these organizations and the integrity of the sport and baseball specifically, I think because of how dramatically statistically driven it is both historically and at the present evaluating players all comes down to these incredibly complicated, you know, mathematic acrobatic movements through the stat sheet. That's how you identify talent. And if you are tampering with the integrity of that part of it, you, you are cutting right to the core of what the, you know, most sort of uh, nuance of what the sport is. That's why I think it's more prevalent here because this is a sport that is paying amends for as I say, like 20, 30, probably longer period of time. And specifically, they found themselves looking at these massive records being shattered. You know, uh, the, the the home run, single home run record where you had both these guys chasing 61 and all of a sudden they're putting up 70 in a season. And then, of course, it comes out. Both of them are doping. Both of them are using an, an enhancement and both of them, the same defense stands that, you know, Lance used and everybody else has used, which is well, everybody was doing it. Why is it illegal? And you can get to the same place with that probably in a lot of sports, but I think baseball because of its history. And also like, to be fair, this is a sport that is built, built around two primary skills, throwing a ball as hard as you possibly can with some complexities to how it's spinning and hitting it. And hitting it comes down to two things. One, contact and then power. And if you can increase your power even a little bit as a slugger in the major leagues, you become, you go from being an average player to a great player very, very quickly. Yeah. If you can hit that ball harder than you were before, the drugs make a difference. Totally. In football Here's the difference. And in hockey or in soccer, performance enhancing drugs are about recovery. They're about because it's an endurance sport, it's about right. physical exertion. Baseball's not that. This is right, the but, biggest but guy with the look, biggest look stick this, hitting. Look a at rock. this situation. Look at this specific situation compared to all of you know. We we're talking about Barry Bonds. We we're talking about Clemens. We we're talking. These guys used those drugs during the like during as they were playing, while as they were on the roster. Sure. This situation here with Tatis is this is a recovery. You're right. So if you how want to blame it on this? them, you can blame it on them. That is why we're here. We're here because there was performance enhancing impacting on the field. So now it doesn't matter what the reason you give is. The point is, once the drugs are banned, they're banned. Once the implementation of the rules is there, it is black and white. And that's the detail here. 80 games is 80 games because that's the rule. It isn't about the nuances of whether or not you used it for a specific reason, right? I mean, it's the same defense that people gave for Lance Armstrong all those years. Well, it's yeah, he, he had chemotherapy. He probably needed the drugs to get back to where he was competitive. But he was that also doesn't matter. Those the were the rules. Yeah, it wasn't a recovery thing for him. And all I'm pointing out is Tatis Jr. was preparing to play again. He was right. tested, Braden, as an active player on a rehab stint in the minors, he was playing when the drug was found. You can't say they randomly tested him while he was sitting there with a cast on his wrist. He was an active player ready to play. That's why he got caught in a random drug test. Yeah. That's So he was using it while playing, I guess is my point. Was it perhaps per, as performance enhancing as some other kind of anabolic steroid? I don't know. I'm not a, yeah, you know, I'm not, know I'm, I'm not a chemist. Any final thoughts here, Elliot, before we leave uh, your beloved Padres? Yeah, I mean, I just on that point, you you can't help but think this has to do with his recovery and his decision not to do surgery and go through a more generalized recovery. And you have to wonder if this drug had a role in, in accelerating that, uh, which would be unfair. And uh, but that was the first that's where my mind went to. It wasn't ringworm. It was uh, trying to get back as quickly as possible. Um, and uh that's where I, 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 until someone tells me otherwise, that's where my, my mind's going to be regardless, stupid decision. And it's really, 
uh, it's really put a damper on what was a really exciting, exciting season for these Padres. Yeah, and they're on the brink. I mean, they're they're really on that place where they needed him to propel them into the playoffs. I mean, they likely still can get there, but that that's a huge loss. Yeah, and I was going up against the Dodgers. I that was the type of firepower that they were going to need. They need sort of hit him, Machado, and Soto all together because, like I've said all year, their hitting is not where it needs to be at the rest down the lineup. So, uh, it's a major blow, and it will, it will, I don't think it'll impact their capacity to make the playoffs, but it certainly will impact their capacity in the playoffs for sure. All right, well, we will leave this conversation there for now. That's topic one. Topic two this week is brought to us by Busy Bee Vegan Skincare. Busy Bee is an all-natural skincare line dedicated to healthy, vegan, plant-based skincare and overall wellness. They offer a selection of handcrafted body scrubs, butters, and washes that not only make your skin glow, but smell amazing. Their unique all-natural scents include gingerbread, ruby grapefruit, caramel cake, and morning latte. So why not treat your skin to something fresh and all-natural? Head over to shopbusybevegan.com today. And as a special bonus, Busy Bee is offering listeners of this podcast a 15% discount on your first order with the code Ordinary Podcasts. All right, off to topic two here. And um, we we have some uh, interesting news that we've just learned this week. Uh, it isn't sort of happening yet. This feels kind of like a, a moment premature, but we thought we'd take a moment to stop and acknowledge the career of Serena Williams, who announced this week that following the U.S. Open, she intends to step away from tennis. She has yet to call it a formal retirement, but that is what it, it is. Uh, she, she, she's decided that she wants to spend more time um, with her family, with her new daughter or young daughter, uh, her husband, and, and away from this sport that has basically been her life. Um, for, since she was very, very young child. And, um, and she has become uh, one of the greatest, if not the greatest tennis players of all time, certainly the greatest woman tennis player of all time. She's dominated the sport right from entering it as a 16 year old, uh, right up through, you know, almost now three decades of playing. Um, she holds many, many records. I think the most impressive of that being 33 grand slam titles. Um, she has, uh, she's the only player in tennis, male or female, to ever win three of the four Grand Slams six times, which is uh, just unbelievable. Um, she has succeeded both as, an, as a singles player and as a doubles player. And as a doubles player, she her only doubles partner through her entire career was her sister, Venus, who in her own right was an amazing player. But Serena has just found a different level, has always seemed to succeed in there. The one stat, though, that blows my mind is women's doubles with Serena Williams since 1999. They've competed in, I believe, almost 15, yeah, 14 tournaments, and they have a career record of 14 and 0 uh, in Grand Slam tournaments as, as a doubles team. So when they went into a tournament together as a Grand Slam doubles team, they never lost, which is very, very impressive. Look, it's a huge career. There's a lot to unpack there. I think that along with be, being one of the most important um, women athletes of our lifetimes, she is equally a, a very important um, ambassador for uh, the black community as a woman of color. She is a huge ambassador for equal rights and for causes uh, all over the, the board that she has fought for throughout her career. She has never been afraid to speak her mind. She has never been afraid to back down. Uh, she's never 
she has never backed down um, when pushed on issues that she cares about. Um, and she has also also often been um, sort of a, a, an inflection point in conversations around societal um, shifts and changes. I think back to the French Open uh, probably about five, six, seven years ago where she was um, uh, they, they would not allow her to wear what they called at the time, the, the Nike cat suit, right. It was like a, a, a full length to the, uh, to the wrist, to the, to the ankles, um, basically skin tight, black leotard style, um, spandex suit that Nike had specifically designed for her as an ambassador athlete. It was incredibly form fitting. And she is a larger woman, a black woman with curves, not necessarily fitting the traditional, you know, blonde, blue haired, skinny, small female tennis player. And the French authority at the time felt that they were not comfortable with her wearing that as it was too revealing to which she responded. This thing makes me feel and look like a superhero. And I want little black girls all over America to know that black bodies are beautiful too. So for me, there's so many highlights when you look at who she was, not only as an athlete, but as an ambassador for her sport, for her causes, for who she is as a woman. And I just wanted to, to, to give us a full segment here as a hats off a prelude just to, to sort of pay tribute to what was an amazing career. She played her last game in Toronto or last game in Canada, I should say, in Toronto this weekend. Um, got a lot of attention there, too. She was unable to, to go through that tournament, but she will play, as I say, at the U.S. Open, and that should be her uh, final tournament. Elliot, I know that you've been a big fan of Serena Williams a long time. We had a conversation about this maybe a year ago uh, early on uh, in this show's life where we discussed whether or not she was the GOAT across male and female lines in tennis. So I'll ask you again, is Serena Williams, as she prepares to leave the sport, the greatest to ever play it? Yeah, I, 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 without question. I think she's one of the greatest athletes of all time to, to play any sport, uh, man, woman, whatever sport you're talking about. Uh, she's, and the reason why I say that is sort of twofold. You touched a lot, uh, a lot on this during your, your opening, but you know, I just want to circle back. One, uh, her performance on the court was unmatched. Uh, she was dominant for a long time. Um, you know, she would fighting through injuries, coming back from injuries, obviously um, having a child coming back and, and getting to the same form that she was then um, and having done that for a long term uh, time. But I also think the barriers that she broke in a, what was a traditionally white, what you think about is like the what, a stereotypical white environment. Uh, the only one I could think probably less inclusive would probably be golf um but tennis is right up there and what her and her sister you know uh, have managed to do in the sport and in the space uh is 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 amazing um it's a great loss i feel very honored that you know i got to spend a lot of time watching her uh and and build her career and uh it will be sad to see her go but uh i'm i'm thankful that as i am with any athlete that this happens to uh, it's on her terms and not um, for a health reason or something like that. So, yeah, but in, to, to circle back to your question, greatest of all time across any sports, it, it has to be like top two, top three. I can't, it, who else are you talking about? Yeah. Right. So Braden, I'll ask you the same question, but I'll just rephrase it a little bit. When you do look at the kind of impact she's had, is she one of, if not the most sort of, influential athletes of our generation in terms of the impact she's had. Yeah. And that, uh, like, again, just jumping off of being a goat, she has, she has really excelled beyond just the court. Uh, that, that, that really leads the way 
you know, you, people and fans, they, they flock to winners and champions and the people who succeed and, uh, you know, beyond just the activism off the court, you know, she's involved in fashion all around the world. She's got endorsement deals through, you know, many different places and things. She's a, uh, you know, a part owner for the Miami Dolphins. She's got charity work, you know, year round that she's focused on, um, you know, she's a writer, she's invested in a soccer, an all women's soccer team, you know, she's just, she, she's constantly, uh, you know, she's got her hands in a lot of different areas that she believes in. And, um, you know, to be successful on the court, I think just that's that energy she's able to bring in all aspects of her life. And I think that that also is what makes her such a, a, a goat or greatest of all time and, and two just going back to her tennis career like tennis might be one of the hardest physical sports to play when it comes down to you know the amount of injuries she's had to endure throughout her career and and the impact on your knees and your and it's the stamina that it takes to play the game you know to be able to be as successful as she has uh it well into her 40th uh turnaround the sun is uh, remarkable yeah, I think that that's I think everything both of you have said is right. And I think that what's what's fascinating and sort of just beautiful about um, her career as a whole is that it is so uh, diverse and complicated and in so many ways just so rich with um, these kind of diverse factors, these different parts of it. Yes, she had to be an absolute elite tennis player to get the attention and to earn the attention that she got but she equally was a charismatic and fascinating uh, person playing tennis. She was often, you know, very emotional on the court. We've, we've had many instances throughout her career of very explosive uh, matches that ended in shouting matches with the officials or, you know, being ejected for matches because of uh, her emotions spilling out. I think back to a U.S. Open, I believe she was disqualified from because she yelled at a line um, judge who, who made a call she didn't like. And, and it became this very big, almost scandalous situation where, you know, the athlete was screaming at the official and in tennis, you know, you're kind of right on top of it. And we, you know, there's, there's a thousand different examples of it, but you go back to it and you start to think, would she have been treated differently? Had she been a man in the same situation? And because she represented so many things in so many different ways, Again, a, a woman of color in an athletic pursuit in America under the circumstances that we have experienced throughout the last, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, the importance of being, uh, you know, all of the things that she was. Um, I think that when you're able to not only succeed, but become one of the most dominant in your sport through those circumstances, and at the same time, hold on to um, all of these other parts of uh, of who she was. I mean, for me, it's not even a question. I think she will retire as the greatest tennis player to ever live. I think equally she will go down as one of the most important athletes of our generation. I think that equally she will probably go down as one of the most influential celebrities or, or sort of people uh, of our generation. Look, it is not easy to become a one name sort of person, but when you say Serena, in sports circles, they know who you're talking about. She has become so synonymous with that. She has become so clearly identifiable. It is Tiger. It's Jordan. It's Brady. And it's Serena. I mean, she's and Gretzky or, you know, like the, Babe Ruth. Yeah. There's so many 
players who meant so much, but for me, it's her. I mean, you can have the conversation about Federer and Nadal and Jokovic all together. They're all three, the best, the best athletes in their moment, but they all existed at the same moment. And while they were all sort of fighting over who was going to be number one on the men's side, Serena is just racking up win after win after win. And again, going back to those other athletes, like when Tiger was at his pinnacle early 2000s, when he showed up on a leaderboard four or five strokes back on a Sunday, everyone ahead of him played poorly because they knew he was coming. When you were down by three, six, nine points in the fourth quarter and you knew Jordan had the ball, you knew you were in danger, right? We were talking with Tyler about this on Pit Stop the other week. It's starting to get like that right now with Max Verstappen. It's like if Max Verstappen has a car under him, he's going to win, right? Lewis was like that for a long time. Tiger was like that. Jordan was like that. Look, Tom Brady has never won a Super Bowl that his team was not trailing going into halftime. That tells you how good he is. Serena Williams, when she made a Grand Slam final, she was going to win it. For so long, it was a sure thing. And sure, you know, uh, look, at the end of the day, uh, what, what's, the, what's the line? Father time is undefeated. She's, she's old for, for, for a tennis player. All these players she's now playing against grew up idolizing her. And I think she's recognizing that and starting to go, you know what? I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. I have other things I care about and I have very little left to accomplish and prove here. I think I've done what I have to do. And for me, that's why I think, as Elliot said, it's so nice to see someone go out knowing she still could like Serena Williams could still very much compete and win titles, but she has nothing left to prove as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I think the other thing to count on too that, uh, and I, this will be missed. Uh, there will be lots of things about Serena that will be missed. But you know, when there was a racially charged event going on in the world, uh, and w- whether it's tangentially related to sports or or not at all, um, there were generally two to three athletes that were asked to comment on it. It was always LeBron James, generally Tiger Woods, and it was Serena Williams. And uh, just in terms of her advocacy and willingness to engage in difficult and hard things, I think that also can't be missed as well, too. And I think I want to just shout out to that as well. Yeah, I think as we've all pointed out, I mean, there's so many different stories. There's so many different pieces of it. Her legacy is so, so long. And I personally am just really excited to see what she does now with the rest of uh, with the rest of her life and the rest of the legacy that I know she will continue to build as whether that's in the public eye where it's simply going and being a mother to her beautiful child and, and, and enjoying the fruits of her labor, because I have a feeling it won't be quite so private. She has a lot of interests and a lot of uh, um, people that will now be coming and knocking on the door saying, Hey, um, would you like to come out and do this? And I know we'll see a lot more of her in the future, but uh, for now, we'll all take a collective hats off to Serena Williams. That's topic two. Hello, football fans and fans of the Ordinary Podcast Network. My name is Tyler Walzak. I am here with Puya Ricey, and we are starting a podcast called Running Down the Clock. Each week, we're going to bring to you a little bit of football talk, player news, controversies, headlines, all the big plays, and then football action that you can handle. On August 11th, we will be debuting our podcast, and we are going to break down each division of the NFL up until the season begins. And once that season begins, it is nonstop football talk every Thursday, for the rest of the season, we look forward to you listening to us on the Ordinary Podcast Network. Let's finish off with a hats off. It's been a while for, since all three of us were together, so it feels like it's a it's a it's a good time to do it. Um, I'll go first. Uh, 
Big win today for a young man who has been waiting for a big win. He has been the bridesmaid for far too long at majors and far too long at big PGA tournaments. Um, it is, it, it's well overdue for Will Zalatoris to get a win under his belt. He wins his first PGA tour, uh, win. it's in the playoffs at the FedEx cup, he wins the St. Jude championship. His very first win as a PGA player, a young man who has fought very hard and has been incredibly good. I believe he was the runner up or in third place this year at the U S open, uh, at the masters, he was up there competing. He's just been missing out on those opportunities. He went into a playoff today uh, for this tournament. And I don't know if you saw the highlights guys, it, they, it was a shot. Uh, he, you know, the first playoff hole, he and, and, and he, the man he was playing off against whose name has escaped me in the moment because he didn't win. He, he the, they both had to take a, the first shot was across. It's a par three to an Island green and his shot hit the, the rock barrier that surrounds the Island green. It bounced straight up in the air, bounced off the rocks again, bounced probably two, three times. It was very Kawhi rim esque. Everyone's breath held watching, waiting for it to drop into the water for the penalty. And it nestled itself between the edge of the grass on the rock, like an impossible shot. And then everyone thought, well, he's probably gonna have to take a drop because you can't make that shot anyway. So they go to his opponent, his opponent takes a shot and his shot is almost identical, hits the rocks, but his hits the water trap. So we'll get sort of a buy because they're both going to take a penalty regardless. And he goes on to win it with a 10 foot putt. So a fantastic um, accomplishment for a great, for a great, uh, just one of those good guys in sport that you kind of, you've been, I've been rooting for him for a while, just hoping he'd get a win. So Will Zalatoris, my hat goes off to you, Elliot. Uh, yeah, that was going to be mine. So I'm going to go to one Kent Johnson who pulled off the Michigan move in the world juniors this year. Of course, no one's seen it because we're all boycotting the world juniors and team Canada as we should be. Um, but I did see the clip of it. And to do that, to do that in practice is incredible uh, when you don't have the pressure of, you know, <laughs> a game, which is literally the fastest game on earth. Um, but, but to do it um, from behind the net score goal like that, uh it's you know it's dark clouds around that tournament um but you know it, it's tough because you you know it's really important for the young men uh that are there now in their careers and it's a it's generally a an important moment in a young hockey player's life and so be able to do something like that um you just want to acknowledge the skill and talent associated with that um but yeah let's all just go back to not watching the tournament though Braden. All right. I am tipping my hat to, um, we just spoke about uh, a Titan in Serena Williams when it came to success in sport, in her sport and activism around the world. And I think we would be remiss to not uh, recognize and honor the legacy of the great Bill Russell, who passed away this month. Um, uh, 11 time champion, like, you know, he's, he stood with Dr. King and he stood with Muhammad Ali. And, and this was a, this was just a great, uh, you know, he, he, let, he is a, a greatest of all time. And uh, uh, the NBA honoring his legacy in uh, they'll, they'll be retiring his number six across the league. This will be the first league wide uh, number that has been retired. Um, Adam Silver saying Bill Russell's unparalleled success on the court and pioneering civil rights activism deserves to be honored in a unique and historic way permanently retiring the number six across the nba ensures that bill's transcending career will always be recognized obviously there are still number sixes in the league uh a la lebron james uh but uh after this year uh then we'll be issuing that number out again so uh 
an amazing man, Bill Russell, uh, I think a, a Titan when it comes to just sport and championship and winning and success, uh, and, 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 and doing the right thing. So hats off to Bill Russell. Yeah. As you say, the first time the NBA has done, I believe it's only the third time in North American sport. We've seen it. Jackie Robinson's 42, obviously retired league wide in the, um, MLB, Gretzky retired with the 99 when he retired. I guess the NFL probably retires the 12, maybe when Tom retires. But the bigger question here is, and I, and I, it's interesting because I've heard a lot of um, different responses to this. Obviously, a huge honor, but ironically, probably the last guy that would want that kind of recognition would have mm-hmm. been Bill Russell. He was such an, like, sort of under, um, sort of soft-spoken but but equally like avoided the fanfare recognized it was there i mean he, we've seen him a few times because i believe the championship the, the the championship mvp trophy is named after bill russell is that right yeah. so obviously you know you saw him in those kind of places of recognition but he would have been the last guy to, to want this or ask for this but i think it's a beautiful thing the nba did so i i commend that one too Braden. that's a great one uh, thank championships eh? oh yeah no just dominant uh, doesn't have enough again doesn't right. have enough fingers for all that rings that's right uh thank you Braden. thank you uh elliot thanks everybody for listening again if you haven't yet please go subscribe um and as well i mentioned this last week it launched on thursday please go check out running down the clock it's the newest podcast from the ordinary podcasting network uh premiered as i said last thursday they've got two more episodes two more divisions are going to break down this thursday and they will continue to do that until the start of the regular season for the nfl it's a fun show it's a fast-paced show uh it gets a little heated this week so so tune in for that thursday running down the clock uh and you can also find all of the other things you you want to know about the ordinary podcasting network on our website ordinarypodcasts.com thanks everybody have a great week that was hat Patrick is a member of the Ordinary Podcasting Network. It's produced every week by Jordan Dyler Coltman and Braden Dyler Coltman. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks for listening. The Ordinary Podcasting Network wishes to acknowledge that the lands on which our conversations take place include Treaty 6 territory, the traditional meeting ground and home for many indigenous peoples, including the Cree, Dene, Soto, Blackfoot, Métis, and the Nakota Sioux peoples, as well as the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. We acknowledge the many First Nations, Métis, and Inuit whose footsteps have marked these lands for generations. And we extend our appreciation for the opportunity to live, create, and share stories on these territories. The Ordinary Podcasting Network intends to engage in conversations and dialogue, which acknowledge that reconciliation is not a destination, but a journey, and that we remain committed to practicing our craft in a decolonized space.